Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. And this passage is a, a little bit interesting. Um, there are several passages like this, um, but you kind of have to observe the context in order to see the purpose for which a passage like this serves. We're going to be looking at Matthew's chapter, Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. Um, and this passage is unique in the sense that it serves as a segue between chapters 8 and 9 and chapter 10. And by that I mean this is a transitional passage. It is a conclusion to the big idea of chapters 8 and 9 and an introduction to the big idea of chapter 10. That's essentially what a transition is. It's concluding one thing and leading into and introducing another thing all at the same time. Not that it's, it's not separating ideas as far as there's a brand new idea coming, as much as it is it's joining the two in a transitional sense, but, produce, but producing a different angle, a different approach. At this point, now that's a um, that's a uh, complicated way of describing a transition, but um, that's kind of what preachers do, right? <laughs> we complicate things. Um, but before we dive into how this serves as a transition and what exactly it's concluding and introducing, let's seek the Lord in prayer. Um, I promise it's not going to be as complicated throughout the entire. Um, sermon, uh, well, I can't say a promise, because who knows what the Spirit will do, <laughs> but, um, but as far as my intent goes, this is meant to be actually pretty simple. I actually have a four-point outline today, uh, which I do not always have. Um, so, let's pray, let's seek the Lord's guidance as we look to Him, as we find Him to be our strong tower and the source of all wisdom. Lord, I thank You for Your goodness, I thank You that You long for us, I thank You that you have entered us into, in a way, a courtship, which you are pursuing us throughout the course of our life, um, until that one day where we will have a marriage ceremony with Christ, our Messiah, our Savior, the Bridegroom. Um, and Lord, I just pray that we would long for Christ, that Christ would not simply be longing for us, but that we might also long for him according to the work of the Spirit that is within us, that you have given us, who is here to reveal and make manifest Christ to us. And Lord, as we are going to talk about our responsibility a lot today, Lord, I pray that we would not forget the banner that goes over this, that is Christ, his love, his grace, his mercy, his kingdom, and his mission. Lord, help us to glory in Christ as we discuss these things today. In his name, I pray, amen. All right, so just to give you a brief overview of everything we've been talking about in chapters 8 and 9, which it's been many weeks that we've been in chapters 8 and 9, and we're concluding chapter 9 today. As I talked about, this is a transitional passage, so it's kind of bringing a conclusion to chapters 8 and 9 and launching us from that diving board of chapters 8 and 9 into chapter 10, which has kind of a, a different idea, different um, purpose. Chapters 8 and 9 dealt largely with 
the manifestation of the authority, the compassion in the work of Jesus. If we're going to wrap it all up in one sentence, chapters 8 and 9 dealt with the manifestation of the authority, the compassion, and the work of Jesus Christ. If you review the sermons, if you read through those two chapters, you see that everywhere that you look. Matthew is making manifest Christ's authority, compassion, and his work. Or you could say his power. Jesus has, Matthew explained, he illustrated for us through these stories that Jesus has authority over the natural, the physical, and the spiritual worlds. He has control over, power over nature, humanity, and souls. Jesus, we also saw, was not obligated to any man or woman, but his compassion on them, as we saw many times, drove him to act on their behalf. To to produce a solution to their need. Whether it was healing, forgiveness, exorcism, Whatever it was, Christ's compassion was continually driving him to act on behalf of these people. And Jesus' work was comprised of stopping storms, healing, casting out demons, forgiving sins, and teaching. We have all of this wrapped up in these past um, two chapters where we see Jesus, what he's capable of, his authority, what he has power over, what he is sovereign over, everything. We saw that. We saw his compassion at work. We saw what he can do. And now, this passage we're going to be looking at is um, transitioning us into chapter 10. And I'll just give you a preview of chapter 10. We're going to launch into it in the coming weeks. But chapter 10 is essentially Jesus inviting his disciples into sharing his authority, his compassion and his work. So in chapters 8 and 9, we see Jesus doing all these things. In chapter 10, we're going to see Jesus inviting his disciples into the same things that he was doing. And in the passage we're looking at today kind of gives us an overview or a transition into that to show us, okay, this is what Jesus was doing, and this is what we're going to be called into doing also. Maybe it won't be manifested in the exact same ways that Jesus manifested it, I don't, I don't know any Christians who have cast out demons. I don't know anybody who calmed a stormy sea. I know that the prayers of people have brought rain, and those people need to go, you know, stop <laughs> praying for the rain. Um, people's prayers have stopped rain. But today, we are going to see in verses 35 through 37, the... Um, transition between Jesus' work and our, our work. And let, me read, let me read the passage. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So this is the translational account where Jesus, where it's 
summarize the, the work of Jesus is summarized, and we also see an introduction of Jesus praying that there will be other harvesters going out into the world doing the, on the same mission that Christ has, fulfilling his compassion, his authority, and his work. When he said the laborers are few, he was right. Who else was pursuing and proclaiming the kingdom of God in a way that Jesus was when he was alive? John the Baptist, in a sense, was doing that. But the Pharisees had given up their real work. You can read about that in Malachi. They had really kind of perverted the mission of the the religious rulers of that day. They weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. The priests, they really had been stripped of all authority. They weren't really proclaiming the truth. It was just really Jesus and John the Baptist. The laborers were very few. (laughs) And now we see him invite, we're, we're transitioning into his commission of his disciples to do the things that he's doing. And we're going to see that first, piece by piece. I said there's a four-point outline throughout this, and I'll just give you the four points right now. So the first point we're going to talk about will be the teaching and the proclaiming of the truth. The second point, we're going to talk about serving, acting on behalf of those in need. The third point we're going to see in this passage is the compassion of Jesus. And then the fourth point we're going to look at is the the earnest prayer of the saints for the kingdom of God, for harvesters to seek it the way Jesus sought it. So let's start out in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That's where we're going to start here. We see him. He's going throughout everywhere. He's already been doing this. Like I said, this is a summary, right? He's already been doing this. You remember the Sermon on the Mount. You remember his, all his boat rides across the, across the sea and his wanderings around different areas. Already up to this point, he's, going, he's been going throughout all the cities and villages. And he's been teaching in their synagogues. A synagogue was not the same as a church, really. Um, in a way, it was similar. But a synagogue was basically a place where people would come and they would learn from rabbis and other religious teachers. Um, and they would have opportunity to read from the scrolls, which people back then didn't have Bibles on their shelves. If you wanted to go and read the Bible or, or listen to somebody read from the Bible, you would go to a synagogue where they had a scroll. Usually they didn't have the entire Old Testament, but they would have some scrolls there and somebody would read from a scroll. This is the word of God. And people would have liberty to ask questions and to learn um, from teachers of the law. And this is one place where Jesus was going and he was teaching in these synagogues. Remember at the very beginning of his ministry, he went to a synagogue. He read from the scroll from Isaiah that said that basically was a messianic um, prophecy, kind of initiating his um, ministry and proclaiming his authority as the Messiah. That's one of the things that he was doing in the synagogue. Um, And he said, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Let's separate that a little bit. What does gospel mean? The good news. Not just news. It's good news of the kingdom. What's so good about news of the kingdom? Sometimes we think the kingdom of God hasn't come yet. I mean, we're still waiting on the new creation. 
But the good news is good news because the kingdom of God has approached the world in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Yeah, maybe it's not complete yet, but the kingdom is initiated. And Jesus has brought it, and he's telling the people the good news that the kingdom is here. The people, remember, the good news the people were looking for was that Israel was going to be made a holy nation again. They were going to be made a prominent power. God was going to visit them again in their temple, and he was going to dwell among them because, as it was prophesied earlier in the prophets, he had left. His presence was no longer in the temple. The good news of the kingdom was that God was going to come back to the temple. He was going to restore the nation. The Messiah was going to restore the rule of the throne of David for all eternity. That was the good news of the kingdom that they were expecting. But he was, he was in, in so on and so forth. But here this is what Jesus is doing. The first thing that Jesus is doing is going throughout all the cities and villages, making sure that the people, God's people, the Jews, knew that the Messiah was there, in a sense. The good news was coming. The kingdom was coming. That's what he's telling them. And here he's going to be transitioning us into chapter 10 where we get to go and do that too. The disciples of Jesus get to go and do that too. He is commissioning his followers to go and do the work that he is doing. Look at Mark chapter 16. Mark 16, starting in verse 14. Mark 16, 14 says, Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. So Jesus has died. He is resurrected. And they were reclining, the disciples were reclining at a table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. So he's straightening them out first and foremost. He's risen. It's true. Why did you not believe? If you cannot believe, how can you get other people to believe? So he says, and he said to them in verse 15, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. There are the stakes. Those who believe your word will be saved. Those who do not believe the word, they will be condemned. Verse 17, and these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. So they will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So regardless of how you would interpret the place of those last couple of verses and how we're supposed to work out the manifestations of our salvation. One thing is certain. Believers manifest the power of Christ. Regardless of whether or not we can go out and drink poison and not die or get bit by snakes and, and not die or, or what cast out demons, regardless of whether or not we've done those things or, or are supposed to do those things, that's not the point today. The point is, Jesus is giving his disciples, those who come to him, manifestations of the power of Christ. But how do they receive that? They must receive the gospel. How are they going to receive the gospel? The disciples of Jesus go out and they make more disciples. That's how we can see Christ being spread. Because he starts out here. Well, one with a rebuke because they would not, even his own disciples would not believe what has been spoken about him. He had to appear to them 
physically in order for them to believe. I mean, let's not be too hard on them. Sometimes we're really hard on doubting Thomas. People just don't come back from the dead. (laughs) But nevertheless, they should have believed. He had given them enough to go on. But then he goes on and says, he tells them, go into the whole world. Proclaim what you now see. Proclaim what you now know and beheld with your own eyes. That I am the Messiah. I am risen. I am still alive. I am the Son of God. And that people must look to me to be saved. Go and proclaim it so that others may know. Romans chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. If you'd like to look there with me. Romans 1, 14 to 18. Says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So here we see Paul introducing to the Romans that he is obligated to take the gospel to people he calls Gentiles, Greeks, barbarians, wise, foolish, and he is eager to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are in Rome. And he gives the reason for it, okay? Now, it's not necessarily your and my obligation to go to Rome with the gospel. Maybe for some of us it is. But he is giving us the motivation that we all share together that keeps us from making excuses from entering into the mission of Paul. And I'll be honest with you, Paul's talk is intimidating because I can see Paul. He's very... Very much not like me. (laughs) Bold, authoritative, even though he admits that he's not like that in person. But when he writes, he's like that. And it can be very intimidating. So I can enter into this fear with you to hold hold myself up to the standard that, that Paul produces for believers throughout his works is a hard thing to do. And I and I'll be honest with you too. Sometimes the words that I speak can be very difficult and they sound like I'm demeaning or diminishing you and I can I'm telling you now that I'm not doing that I'm not trying to do that all I'm trying to do here is proclaim the word of God I do not believe that I am above anybody but what I want to do is faithfully proclaim the word of God which is above every single one of us and I just want to make that clear because sometimes I do understand that I can be a little bit hard in how I approach you. And if I have harmed anybody in that regard, I apologize for that. But I just want to make my intentions clear. I believe the word is over me, and I believe the word is over you, and that is all I am trying to proclaim. And I also see how hard it is here to enter into the mindset of Paul, to have the boldness and the eagerness of Paul to do the hard things And here's the motivation for why he can do those things. He says in verse 16, For 
I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Remember Jesus? He first went to the household of God, the Jews. That's where he ministered. He didn't go to Babylon. He didn't go to Europe. He didn't go to Spain or Africa. Well, he was in Egypt as a child. I guess that counts, perhaps. The Jew first and also to the Greek. Verse 17, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Look at this. I mean, this, to me, that shows me the compassion of Paul. I am so eager to go to anybody, especially the hard people. Why? Because I know that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Now, how can he say that as his motivation unless he saw the people as in dire need of what he had to share with them that he was willing to suffer and to die in order for them to be approached with this word within which was the righteousness of God. The only way people can partake in the righteousness of God and be forgiven of their sins is if the gospel of God is given to them. So we must be driven by compassion. We must look at our community and say, by name, they're not okay. They're not ready to die. I have to take the word of righteousness to them because they're not ready to see God. And this was part of Paul's motivation. He thought about the Greeks the Gentiles, the barbarians. And he thought, they're not okay. They're not ready to die. So I am eager to come and share the gospel with them, whether it produces suffering of the body, death of the body. Because he knows, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He knows the stakes and that most people are on the wrong end of those stakes. So it was his compassion driven by truth that drove him to do the work of Jesus in these people's lives. I have several passages to look at, but we're going to skip at some of these passages for the sake of time. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, go there with me real quick. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 to 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation... Okay, so that's um, the, the language there basically implies the new creation has come upon him is how that's really worded in the original languages. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come upon him. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So we're talking about transitions here. You're transitioning into a man or a woman of Christ being newly created. In verse 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, 
In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, therefore, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We also can see, if you just really dwell on that, the compassion of Paul on the lost and the eagerness for him to get other disciples to be doing the things that he is doing, which are the things that Christ was doing. (laughs) I mean, this is really him trying to get volunteers. I mean, if anybody has done volunteer work, you know how hard it is to try to get volunteers to do anything. And I'm thankful that you all are very eager to help and volunteer in different capacities. But here Paul is, is compelling these people. You are ambassadors of Christ. You have been given reconciliation and therefore along with it, what you have received, you have been given the ministry of taking that reconciliation to everybody else. It's all of our work. Not just mine, Paul says. He's telling the Corinthian church, join me. In the work of Christ. And what is the work of Christ? I love the way he words it in the middle of verse 20. God making his appeal through us. I mean, look at that. When you are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, God is making his appeal through you. It's not about you. That's what we're, I mean, that's what brings a lot of the fear. And we've talked about that in the afternoon services, and I'm not going to dwell on that. But it's God making his appeal. It's not your word of the gospel. It's God's gospel. That he is appealing to the world. Trying to bring the world in. Through you and through me. Would we silence the appeal of God? Let's move on. Matthew chapter 9. The end of verse 35. So we, let's just read the beginning again. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Because he wanted the people to know the good news of the kingdom. To ready them for the time when he would shed his blood so that they could receive the remission of sins. And at the end of the verse it says, and healing every disease and every affliction. So here we see Jesus was not just teaching and preaching, But when he saw the people, he loved them. He saw their pain. And he served them in the midst of their pain. He was doing the teaching and preaching. But there are many times where he wasn't teaching and preaching, but he was healing and helping and serving. Mark 10, 42-45 says... And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be eloquent proclaimers of the gospel. Not necessarily, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever must be, who would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, 
and to give his life a ransom for many. So we see even the foundation behind the gospel message itself is service. 1 Peter chapter 4. Verse 10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Philippians chapter 2, we can read about his self-emptying, how he came to empty himself on behalf of others. And now Peter is telling us, if as everyone who has received a gift, use it to do the same thing Jesus did. Use it to do what Jesus did. To empty, use it to empty yourself in the service of other people. And we can talk about this all day long, but you can, 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter, sandwiched in this conversation of using gifts to serve one another, then he takes a whole chapter to talk about love and the nature of love. At the very end of that chapter, he talks about how, um, here, let me see here, let me just, so I can get the wording right. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, if you want to look there, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, says, love never ends, but as for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. That which is perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Talking about eternity, not necessarily the canon. That, we can talk about that another time. But the gifts that we have, they are meant to be disposable. We're supposed to empty ourselves all our life long with our gifts until we die, and when we die, we're in the presence of the Lord, and we no longer need those gifts anymore. It's the same thing with money. If, our, if the Lord has entrusted us with money, the Bible makes a case that those of us who have money are meant to use it to give, to empty ourselves in that way. If we are, meant, if we are given the gift of proclamation, we are meant to empty ourselves in a way in the proclamation of the word. We are given the gift of service. We are supposed to exhaust ourselves in the service of God. We're supposed to live a life with everything that God has given us to empty ourselves for the world. That's what Jesus did, and that's what he is calling us, his disciples, into. Moving on, the compassion of Christ. If you want to look back at Matthew chapter 9, we're jumping all around. If you just want to stay in Matthew 9, that's fine. And just listen to the verses. In verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I mean, that really speaks for itself. In Luke 19, we see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem because he knew what was coming upon them and that they were not listening. They would not listen. Jerusalem is the one that killed the prophets because they didn't know, want to know what God really said or wanted. And Jesus is weeping over them. He's not condemning them. He's weeping over them because of his compassion.
In, in Mark chapter 6, we see the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, but first he sat down with them. He preached to them because he saw that they were like a sheep scattered abroad with no shepherd. So he stuck there. He got himself up on a mountain so that the people could hear. He taught them. And then when he was done teaching, guess what he did? He told his disciples, the people are hungry. Go get them something to eat. His compassion served both their soul and their body because he saw both needs. He saw the spiritual need. He saw the physical need. And in 1 John chapter 3, let me just read these real quick. This won't take long because they really speak for themselves. They don't take much commentary. 1 John 3, 16 to 18 say, By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Is that not saying what we've been saying? But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love by word or talk, but in deed and in truth. We know we're supposed to empty ourselves out for other people, but we don't do it. How can we say we're walking with Christ? How can we say we have the love of God if we know to do God and do it not? Know, know to do good and do it not. This is how we know love. That he laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for others. That's a summary of love. Summary of 1 Corinthians 13. By this we know love. We see the compassion of Christ. We have that compassion. We see a need. We produce. In verse 4, or the, the fourth point that I want to get to here today, of vital importance. This is something that everybody can do. Verse 37, then he said to his disciples, after this summary, this, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He sees all these people in need. And we can talk about how there was a time when the harvest was not ready. Things were still being planted. That was the days of the prophets and the kings. Things are being planted. The stage is being set. The fields are being tilled. The fields are being prepared. The seeds are being planted. And now the Messiah has come, the prophesied one. The time is right, culturally and religiously speaking. The people knew they had need. They were longing and wanting redemption. The harvest is ready. Oh, but there are so few laborers. And he says, pray earnestly to the Lord of harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And when he says pray earnestly, this is a deep word. Pray earnestly. Maybe your translation says something different. But these two words are actually one word in the Greek. And the word in the Greek means to pray with wanting to pray with desire, to beg. Now, when does a beggar stop begging? When he gets what he needs. And when we're praying for laborers to go and bring in the sheaves, 
We ought not be satisfied until we see it happen. That's what the word means, to pray with wanting and desire. When, there are, when you are hungry, there is something inside of you that needs to be satiated. Otherwise, it becomes painful. And this is how a heart of compassion prays for those in need. There's a hunger, a need that must be satiated. Otherwise, the longing keeps getting stronger. What are we longing for? John Calvin writes in his commentary on this passage, As no man will of himself become a sincere and faithful minister of the gospel, and as none discharge in a proper manner the office of teacher, but those whom the Lord raises up and endows with the gifts of his spirit, whenever we observe a scarcity of ministers, we must raise our eyes to him to afford the remedy there never was greater necessity for offering this prayer than during the fearful desolation of the church, which we now see everywhere around us. Now, this was written many, many years ago, and it's still true today. And quite honestly, our, our nation is a little bit different than John Calvin's nation. We claim to be a Christian nation. So many people proclaim what we proclaim, but not in sincerity. And the point that John Calvin was trying to make is that we must pray for this because you and I don't have the power and the authority in and of ourselves. That's why we pray. No man, not, we don't even pray for ourselves. We're just praying that this need would be met. And the only one who has the power and the authority and the, and the compassion to do it is Jesus Christ. So if this job is going to be done, God must impart to the disciples of, of Jesus, the authority, the compassion, and the power to go and do what Jesus did. That's why we must pray, because it is not natural to man to do the things that Jesus did, to have the compassion that Jesus had. We must pray for it. And we must pray with wanting, longing. Imagine... Darren, are you back there? Okay. There's a farmer <laughs> who has spent vast amounts of time, energy, and money tending a field. Planting or <laughs> waiting to plant. And he has put so much time, many months, taking care of, what he, of the work that he has done, preparing this field to produce a harvest. And when the harvest comes, however, there's nobody to go into the field to bring in the long-awaited yield. That farmer just looks out at the ripe fields, knowing all the growth is just going to rot and go to waste. Where there could be so much yield and benefit from the fields, it instead, everything is a waste. And that is how we must look at our communities. If no one is harvesting, our compassion, our prayers, our earnest desire will result in this painful longing. And that painful longing will usually produce action from us. If the farmer looks out on that field and sees that it's ready to be 
to be brought in, well, then he's going to go and do what he can to bring it in because he knows the benefit from it. He knows that all this work has been done to prepare the fields. It's a waste to not go out and actually reap the harvest. God has already set the scene. God has already sent his Messiah. He's ready to be received. He's ready to be received. And we must dwell on this. Dwell on this in your heart. Think about, picture your neighbors in your head. Think about them by name. Or family members. Think about them by name. And think about them and think, they're not okay. They're not ready to die. They're not ready to die. Does that make something come up within you? Does that bring compassion into your soul? Does that make you want to cry when you think of that face and that name and that relationship over the decades all going to waste, being thrown into Gehenna, burning trash heap of hell, Then what? Are you going to pray for them? Are you going to pray that somebody goes and ministers to them? Are you going to go and minister to them as an ambassador of Christ yourself? This is a hard thing, but this is what motivated Paul. He knew the stakes. He knew where righteousness came from. He knew that the world was not righteous and was in need of Christ's remedy. He understood because he had the compassion of Christ within him. And that drove him by the word of truth to go out and take the remedy to the dying world. Put a face to your dying world. Put a name to your dying world. Think about them. Start with praying for them. Maybe you don't feel the compassion. Maybe there's not the want, the longing that, you know, you know what, it, what it's like to have a longing that needs to be satiated. There are some things that we pray for that are nice, but we're not really longing for them. Wanting them. Growing in pain until we receive what we pray for. There are a lot of things that that's not, that's not really part of our prayer life. We pray for something and we kind of stop and we move on. Because there's not really a wanting, a longing that needs to be satiated. But we ought to have this for the dying world around us. That's what Jesus is asking us. This is how he's telling us to pray in Matthew chapter 9. Pray earnestly that the Lord, to the Lord of harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Pray for them. Pray for those people. Pray for this community. Think about it. How long has it been since this community, Waverly or Ottawa or anywhere in between, has really seen a harvest? When was the last time? Then there should be something building within us. Longing to see a harvest brought in. Building, building. And I'm going to be praying along with you. Because I don't always have compassion. And I need to pray for Christ's compassion. Just like John Calvin said, no man's able to do this of himself. We need God to give us Christ's likeness. Have this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. We need to pray for that. 
regularly because it's the effectual fervent prayer of the righteous man that avails much. If we don't have the effectual fervent prayer that comes from the compassion of Christ, then no wonder our prayers are not availing much. So we need to pray for Christ's likeness within ourselves. We also need to pray for compassion. We also need to be praying for those people, this community, for somebody to be going into it and reaping a harvest. Will you do that with me? This month, there's going to be missionaries here. There's going to be VBS going on. There's opportunity and teaching about souls, lost souls. Let us be praying for our VBS program. Let us be praying for these missionaries as they're going out doing what Jesus is doing. And here with this VBS program, we as an assembly are trying to do something that Jesus was doing. To try to bring in a harvest. Let us be praying. Let us be longing for these children. Can you think of children's faces and their names and their families? Can you think of them and have compassion on them so that they might know Jesus? Let us pray this month, all this month long. Let us devote ourselves to prayer for a harvest. Lord, will you send out laborers into Waverly? Lord, will you raise up laborers in Ottawa? Lord, prepare us, everyone in this room, prepare us with the authority and the compassion and the, and the humility and the power of Jesus Christ. Prepare us according to your good grace to be good ambassadors for Christ. By your grace, Lord, share your mercy with these communities around us so that there might be a harvest. In Jesus' name, amen.